1: Welcome back, everyone. It is now 8.07 here tonight here at WCCO Radio. Thank you so much for sticking and staying with us. Well, my next guest I'm really excited to interview because a few weeks ago, University of Minnesota Regent Steve Swigum created a firestorm when he asked his infamous question about too much diversity. Yes, too much diversity was causing a drop of enrollment on the Morris campus. Now, in the end, Regent Swiggum decided to step down from his role. But the question remains, what does diversity do for a college campus? Hmm. Again, that's what does diversity do for a college campus? To help provide some answers, we welcome Appalachian State University Vital Facular, Faculty Coordinator Lillian Nave, and she joins us via the John Schuster Caldwell Banker Hotline. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us, Lillian Nave. Thank you.
2: <laughs> thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's lovely to talk to you.
1: You too. uh, There's so much to talk about in this whole thing because I'm blown away Mm -hmm. at how in the world did we... Uh, get to the the point where we have to start discussing why diver- there's just too much diversity on certain campuses. Because I remember when we started asking for more diversity. You know, people were saying mm-hmm. that um, uh, we have to get more diverse people on the campuses. We need more so that people can learn culturally from others. And I think that is still very important. How is it that we got here today now when someone can actually... Speak those words. Yeah, we've got too much diversity. Um,
2: I I can't speak to how somebody uh, might say that, but um, I I could speak to the positives of why universities have been looking for diversity because um, having more points of view, um, being able to um, disagree across uh, difference, uh, being able to have civil discussions are all very important. Um, and uh, we hope to have better communicators, to have critical thinkers. Um, those are all of our you know, general education goals uh, to help our students to um, be able to speak to others who are different than they are. Um, and why is that important? Well, because um, in most areas of life, you will work and live with people who are different than you. And so having those skills and abilities to um, see somebody else who's different than you and be able to communicate and understand who they are is a a really important part of life and and life skills. So um, being able to learn some of those while you're in a college class from people who are different than you um, is a very positive experience.
1: I agree with that. Um, the truth is that j- just bringing different students to a university does not magically make for a wonderful experience. And when I read this, I was really quite taken aback because the bottom line mm-hmm. is that we are made to be diverse. You know, whether it's human beings, animals, you name it, our planet, our universe is diverse. And it drives me to the point of sadness when I hear Mm -hmm. someone say, oh, we have too much diversity on on the campus. (laughs) I just don't know how we got here. So then let's talk about where are we going with this type Mm -hmm. of statement leading the way.
2: Well, uh, you know, I I read about that particular statement, and it seems like, um, there was a misattribution. So the idea was that some fellow colleagues or, or, or friends, of the family had students who um, just didn't feel like they would belong. Uh, and so they, they ju- chose not to go to uh, that university because they just didn't get the feeling that they might belong. And so the, the misattribution was, okay, maybe it's too diverse. Okay. So maybe there, there wasn't a space for um, these students who said they didn't feel like they had a place on campus. Now, um, I, I just think that's a misattribution. Um, not feeling like there's a place for you is uh, very important, but I don't think that's causal, right? That, that it's just because there's lots of different people there. Um, and when you mentioned that just bringing diverse people into a campus, that doesn't solve the problem, I agree with you. In fact, I wrote on that recently. Um, is that, yes, universities say, hey, we want lots of different students. In fact, all of our students are very different. Um, And many of these differences we can't see. There are invisible differences, disability, neurodiversity, um, racial, ethnic, cultural backgrounds, uh, college preparedness, first generation, working students, uh, military veterans returning. There's lots of ways to be diverse. Um, But how do we as universities, or how can we, make all of those students feel like they can be supported or feel like they belong. Um, and that is the fundamental problem. We can't just bring students on and say, hey, we want a diverse uh, student body. Look at our numbers. Look at this. Aren't we great? But then we don't provide um, ways for our students to feel like um, they belong on campus. I think that is a problem. So and I do think it was a misattribution. Oh, it's too diverse. So well, That's not the problem. The problem is, how do we make sure that all of those very diverse students that we bring on to the college campus, because we see the benefits of uh, diversity and how, how interesting and amazing every individual is, and that each one of these students deserves a chance um, to better themselves and learn. But um, how do we make the university a place that supports all of those students? no matter Ooh. their ethnic and cultural background.
1: Right. You know, we were doing pretty well, though, over the last decades. I'd say the last 20 years we've been doing pretty well, especially with affirmative action. And then there was this big blowout about affirmative action and wanting to get rid of it. And so here we are once again looking at a way to say, what does diversity really mean on a campus? And I'd love to know how Appalachian uh, State University, mm-hmm. how, how do you see it? How do you see the diversity on your campus? And is it enough Is it working? Um, Well, I I think that um,
2: that question of is it enough is kind of like the same thing as how do you say it's too much? What is enough and what is too much? I I think those are um, those are mm, I don't want to touch those because who's the one to determine what's enough and what's too much? Right. I don't think we can do that Um, at Appalachian. And. Down south, where we are in North Carolina, we call those mountains the Appalachian Mountains, and that's just a different culture. When I lived in New York and uh, in Pennsylvania, they call it Appalachian. Uh, But where we are, it's Appalachian, and um, we have a a diverse student body, and we have a new, wonderful um, chief diversity officer who sees diversity with a broad lens. Um, And not only does... um, uh, she brings um, diverse groups in, onto campus, and I think we're doing a good job. We're, we're bringing a lot of students onto campus. We have a lot of um, students from all over the state and all over the nation who want to come to Appalachian. Um, but she's also paying attention to, well, what happens when they're here? Um, and how can we serve those students when they're on campus? So if you've got students who are first-generation college students and they have a job interview, but they've never um, put, uh, put on a suit and tie, um, we've had um, sessions where we learn how to tie a tie. You know, um, that's, that's a diversity issue, too. It's not, not everybody knows the hidden curriculum about how to do college. Um, We used to only have a small subset of very privileged students going to higher education if we go back 50 years ago. Um, In fact, women mostly weren't even allowed to go in higher education for most subjects. Um, And so we've made huge changes. Anybody who would like to go to college can, for the most part. But what do we do once they are on campus Um, to make sure that we're serving those students. I think that the university also has a duty to serve those students, not just to proudly proclaim that their numbers are great, because who decides what a great number is anyway? Um, So I think a university really has to make a statement or a uh, desire uh, as to what's important and then support the things that are important to them by making those students who are on campus um, have a, a place to gather. So let's say we're a very veteran friendly, uh, campus. So folks who are in the military and are returning to school. So we have a veteran center. We have specific classes. Uh, we have learning communities that help us serve those students. Um, we have various, you know, um, ethnic, uh, and cultural, um, identity centers. We, um, but we also have, um, places and specific um, meetings and, and events where people can talk to each other and learn about each other across difference. And I think that's where we need to be going is, okay, yeah, people are different, but how do we really talk to each other? How do we understand each other? And we may not be able to, to sympathize with another uh, student because we haven't had the same experience. We don't have the same background, but we should be able to learn to understand and empathize with someone else and say, you know what, that makes a lot of sense to you. That makes a lot of sense, understanding where you come from, why that's important to you, why that value is so important. I can understand why you think differently than I do, and I can respect that.
1: Well, there was so, a precursor. I, I, um, excuse me for interrupting, yeah. Professor. Sure. But there, there was a um, a precursor that led to, to this particular statement at the University of Minnesota Regent um, when that was yeah. spread around, right? So here it is for me. I think that diversity, equity, inclusion, or DEI, um, yeah. has has uh, attributed um, so much to making sure that corporations, I'm talking about the Fortune 50 companies, you know, that sort of thing, that mm-hmm. all of these companies are really learning how important it is to have the DEI, um, uh, services. And, and here's the thing. I am shocked that we didn't deal with this a decade ago or two decades ago. But here we are now asking what, what does diversity do or how does it, um, Uh, what does it show about a campus? And that has been a real challenge for me to look at that and say oh I get it because I don't get it. I don't know how we've gotten here. Look at some of the HBCUs, the Historic Black uh, Mm -hmm. Colleges and Universities right? You have also white students that are going to these universities. I remember there was um, a large group of Africans who came to the state of Minnesota and um, settled in a certain area a certain suburb and Mm-hmm. They were able to get into a lot of these HBCUs because they are Africans, first of all, right? And, and they, they yeah. would uh, apply and get into these schools. And some people thought that was wrong to do. I don't have a problem with, um, people, uh, if you can get into the, uh, the university, then get into it. And I started reading yeah. about Howard University where our, um, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, where Kamala Harris, our, um. Yeah vice president you know she went mm-hmm. there and, and they're getting much more money now and of course i read an article that said the white students need to be on these black campuses because they are the ones that are bringing in the money where they're paying full tuition and i gotta tell you that kind of burned me a little bit what do you think of that statement
2: well um th- that often happens um i, I don't know specifically uh, about howard but um a um a university often will get a full tuition uh payment from an international student chinese and indian students Absolutely. often are paying a lot to go to a harvard yale or princeton and they'll pay a full price so that maybe someone who can't uh pay uh, is going for free and that that uh happens uh all over the place um so uh, getting full tuition payers um, balances out the ability to um, hold spots open for those who cannot, do not pay, um, and also lessens the amount of loans that some students uh, have to, to bear as well. So I'm not saying that's good or bad. I just know that it happens. And that's part of the funding model for most universities.
1: I can only imagine. And so now we're using the word belonging. I'd love to hear from you what belonging means to you, especially on the camp- the campus where you work. Yeah. Um,
2: so the DEI, as you mentioned, is, has been very popular um, mm-hmm. in the last, I'd say, decade, right? Um, and the DEIB, the new letter, um, is um, what do we do once we get those students on campus? Because let's say we have a uh, of our students are somehow diverse. They have some marker that makes them diverse, which um, you can kind of determine which ones those are. Is that a a cultural or ethnic marker, race, or um, is it disability, whatever it is? Okay, but what happens then if um, 60% of those students, the ones that you're so proud of to have, don't finish? Are we really serving those students? Now they have loans? Now they have, um, they've spent several years at the university, but they don't have a degree and they've got loans to pay back. Did we really serve those students? Um, And so that persistence, um, the completion to graduation is also very important. So not just, hey, we're going to get these students and that's going to make us look good because we, and we like diversity. We want all these uh, differences. But if we're teaching in the same way that excludes, Uh, an amount of students all the time um, or if we are uh, creating an institution that excludes um, whether it's socially or not providing spaces, a multicultural center, a disability center, uh, a disability cultural center, neurodiversity, Mm -hmm. um, any number of the ways that other students can find people like them so that they are more likely to persist and finish their degree Um, then that's what that belonging is. Um, students need to feel like they can complete their studies, that they belong there, and that they have the support, um, and the tools to do it. Not just, okay, y'all get, you get in, but we've got these weed out courses that are going to tell you if you can really hack it. And if you don't make it, then, uh, sorry. And I, that's a lot with designing better classes that reach all of our students, designing culturally um, uh, inclusive classes, mm-hmm. um, and we're starting to do that. It's, it's kind of relatively new on the horizon using universal design for learning where we try to um, recognize and value the variability of learners and all of the different ways they are, diff- it, you know, different. That's wonderful. Um, Then we're better able to serve our students. So it doesn't really help a campus to bring in a lot of students that fail. Um, In fact, I think that really hurts the campus and it hurts those students, especially.
1: I sure appreciate you joining us tonight. I really wanted to talk to you about universal design for learning a little more, Mm -hmm. but hopefully I can have you back on Mm -hmm. again, Professor. I'm so excited that you joined us tonight. Lillian Nave, senior lecturer Mm -hmm. and vital uh, faculty. I've looked up vital, which is visiting instructors, temporary adjunct and lecturers. (laughs) So I was excited to have that. And I'm just really uh, happy that that we had a chance to talk about it. Say that again. That means all of
2: those non-tenure track Faculty. That's who I am, and that's who I work with. Those that don't have that job security of tenure, uh, which actually is now most of uh, faculty in the United States. There are fewer tenure track lines, and we have more of these adjuncts and uh, tenuous workers. So uh, it makes for a precarious uh, position sometimes.
1: Yeah, my daughter has her PhD, and she uh, she really wanted a a tenure track, and then with COVID and so much more, it just. Oh, boy. It Disappeared. It's, it just disappeared. It's
2: near but, impossible. <laughs>
1: exactly. Exactly. Well, I wish you mm-hmm. well with all that you are working on at uh, Appalachia, did you say? A- do you pronounce Appalachian it? State. Yep. At Appalachian <laughs> State. Thank you so much for joining yep. us tonight.
2: Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All
1: Bye. right. Take care. That was Lillian and Nave and, of course, Senior Lecturer, um, a Vital Faculty Coordinator at Appalachian State University. Please forgive me for that. We'll be back. It is now 829 here at WCCO. I'm excited to introduce you to someone that I have gotten to know over the years. Her name is Gail Short. Who is she? She's an author of an, of a book, brand new book called Opening My Cultural Lens, a globe trekkers experiences and photographs. She's going to be joining us at 835. So stay tuned for that. That's coming up in just a moment. It is now eight thirty-five here at WCCO. Welcome back. You are listening to Steel Talkin'. I'm your host, Geraldine Steele. It is what I love to do is be here with you on a Sunday night, and I am excited about this next guest. I have known her for a while, and I am so excited for her brand new book. It is called "Opening My Cultural Lens: A Globe Trekker's Experiences and Photographs." And her name is Gail Shore. Hey, Gail, how are you? Well, good evening to you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. You know, tonight there's been quite a bit of talk on how we as countrymen and women can grow through each other's differences, right? Grow through each other's differences. Now, how about expanding that across the globe, you ask? And Gail, being a veteran, with, um, you are a veteran when it comes to bringing people together to learn from one another. And now the president of Shore to Shore Communications and founder of Cultural Jambalaya, you are recounting your own journey of growth in a new book. This book is quite fascinating as I keep reading little bits and pieces about it. So I'm going to start out by asking you, when was your first trip abroad? When did you decide to do it and why did you decide to do it?
3: Well, there's, that's a two-part question because the, I, the first time I ever went abroad was in, was in 1967 when I started in the airline business. And that's where I kind of cut my teeth traveling long ago. But back in those days, um, I was, you know, very young and very broke, and we didn't have any vacation time. And so the, the trips that we took, even though we had, you know, travel benefits to do that, were very superficial. They were very short. And, you know, you know, I was more interested in just hopping on an airplane and going someplace. And then before you knew it, we were coming back again. But um, I uh, after I left the airline business, um, I, I started to get really involved in cultural travel, which was a completely different different thing and a, and a departure for me. And I knew that um, and then I started my own business and I and I tried to design my business around the idea of of building in time so that I could travel more comprehensively so that I could literally go away for three weeks or a month someplace and you know and dig into a country a lot more thoroughly and i started to do that oh 35 30 40 years ago i guess and um and you know today now i've been to nearly 100 countries and many of those countries though that i focus on have just fascinating cultures and histories and religions and traditions and so forth that That I just decided a long time ago that I was really going to, you know, frame or quite frankly, dedicate my life to that.
1: I am excited to read this book because I really believe that this book in the hands of all of the students, right, especially in high school and and um, and more, you know, if you go into college, this could be a book that will teach us about our, our cultural intelligence and, and help us grow as um, travelers. And, you know, when you meet and greet people, I mean, these are people that pour into us, right? You had a chance to go see the world. And I'm sure every place you landed, someone poured some information into you that you had I've held on to, and I'm sure, is probably a part of this book. Am I right?
3: Well, it's true. And, and like I said, the places, and most of them that I focus on in the book, uh, or at, at least some of them anyway, are places that are very, very unfamiliar to you, and that's what makes them interesting. There, They are places that most people will probably never travel to, and quite frankly, there's even some places that some people can't even find on a map. And like I said, that's what makes them interesting. Um, they're right. they're they're just off. They they literally are off the beaten track. And, and my trips, you know, I travel by myself. So um, a single woman traveling alone has has um, has risks involved, to be sure. But the but the idea of traveling alone also affords me so many opportunities because people, you know, people everywhere are so curious. And when they see some single woman, you know, traveling around, they're all the more curious about me as I am about them. And so these interesting travel bonds can form because of that.
1: That is quite remarkable. And when you see yourself in these spaces, is this something you dreamt of? Is this something you said to yourself, you know, to your parents, I want to see the world, and you, you actually did it.
3: No, I never did that. That's, that's, the, that's the interesting thing is that, you know, I grew up in a, in a, in a very uh, blue-collar, you know, completely non-diverse uh, you know, community, and um, I was not exposed to any of that at all, and so I didn't have any dreams or or expectations about this at all. I, I frankly, I didn't I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I, I had no clue at all. And had it not been for that airline job, that was a that was just the most to say it was a pivotal moment was an understatement. My life changed dramatically from from that day going forward because it allowed me to become introduced to travel and then to and to cultures around the world. And as the as the title of the book suggests, you know, opening my cultural lens. That's exactly it. So through photography, there being the lens, but you know, it just it's irreversibly changed my life.
1: I can imagine, of course, you talked about remote areas. I would love to hear about at least one of them because some people don't really know how far you have been, how far across the world have you been
3: well i you know nearly a hundred countries takes you around the world and back many times um, you know and, and and all of these places are unique in their own way, you know from from you know North Korea to Syria to to Iran and, uh, and to Timbuktu. But, you know, when you talk about remote places, I mean, I think it's safe to say in my life, the most remote uh, trip that I ever took was spending a month in the Amazon. Um, And I was, and I was in very, um, uh, very remote areas. I mean, one place in particular that I was in was about 170 miles from the nearest dirt road. I mean, Mm. (laughs) there It sounds strange, but you have to fly in by a little airplane, and then once you land, you hop in a canoe, and that's your road. The 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 you know, the rivers are your roads, and so it involved a lot of hiking and a and a and a lot of uh, a lot of trips in canoes and everything. But that's how you get from village to village, and and the deeper you go into these areas, the more. You know, absolutely mind-boggling. Some of these, um, some of these cultures are these these indigenous cultures who have traditions and rituals that go back as far as you can imagine, and they they are they practice them. Of they're alive today, and to be you know a part of of that is it's it's you know I I mean I I, I would just pinch myself every moment just thinking I can't believe that I'm witnessing this or meeting these people and participating in some of their traditions it it was that's but but it was that was a very tough trip too because the amazon is let's just say it's hot and humid (laughs) that's that's an understatement too and a lot of lot of little bugs that bite you all the time so it wasn't it wasn't very pleasant
1: (laughs) yeah i'm sure of that so who were you when you took your first trip and who are you today compare the two
3: um i can't even compare it i I'm, I'm the antithesis of of the, of the of the young kid that i was um in 1967 when i was just a couple of years out of high school and and Geraldine, i didn't have like i said i didn't have any plans for the future i didn't know what i wanted to do never mind who i wanted to become um and i i think i think very often about had i not um had that airline job and had i not been able to travel and, and all of, I just wonder what kind of a person I might have become I don't I just don't know but it it certainly wouldn't have been the person that I turned into
1: okay so uh I haven't known you forever, but let me tell you, I've known you for a long time, as you know. And I, I keep asking myself, someone that is that bold, that strong, to go forward in the world, just to to meet the cultures that they never cultures that they've never heard of, or wanted to find more about. Um, I can imagine all of the children that you have interacted with. Um, I want you to tell us more about that. How your pictures have come to really matter to so many schools and classes and and what that has been like for you to deliver such important information
3: well the, the 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 trips and their stories and certainly the photography um you know I learned when I began my nonprofit cultural jambalaya when I when when we put the the board of directors together you know we sat down and we immediately recognized that all of these stories and photos uh would be best served in schools because um, because students just have so much to learn from them. And, and, and it, what it does is that it, it jumpstarts conversation in classrooms, and in the social studies in particular. And so we started the nonprofit back in 2005, and it's grown into just this amazing nonprofit today that reaches hundreds of thousands of, of students and we put together videos, um, and many of the photos in these videos are, you know, from my experiences. And so I'm, I'm obviously very proud of that, but it's, it's just, you know, yet another thing when I was said earlier about how everything in my life seems to have gone back to that, the cracking of that nut back in, in 1967 when I joined the airline. But, you know but my 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 travel my nonprofit my career everything has come out of out of that uh, out of that experience and so yeah so today um so today i i still have my little pr business but the, the pr business also came out of the airline industry too where i served in public relations there so it's just it's it's just been this uh, you know this uh, interesting you know you know little fruitcake that's popped up with all <laughs> all of these things in it that that uh, that have just formed who I am today but pff, I wouldn't have known that back then at all not at all
1: This book was published on October 24th of this year not long ago just weeks ago And of course I want to remind everyone it's called Opening My Cultural Lens a globe uh, a globe trekker's experiences and photographs by Gail Shore Of course as I read this and I I can't wait to read the book I keep thinking, okay, she's already working on the second part. <laughs> you know, there's going to be a second book. I just know you enough to think that. So am I right? I don't I don't
3: know. I haven't gotten that far yet.
1: <laughs> I hope you will. I really hope you will because I'm I'm uh, blown away by All of the places you've been. And I wish that every American child or every child that lives in America could go someplace, go, go far, go and learn about the other cultures, you know, increase your cultural, um, Uh, experiences and influences and get out there and see the world when you're grown, right? Whatever you have to do. My children, uh, my son went to France and uh, my daughter went to Spain and she went all through Spain and she went to Morocco and so much more and they came back different, better. Stronger it's like they knew more about the world and they were seeking more and more information um and that's that's just amazing to me. my daughter has been to Africa now and so much more so the children have been blessed by all of the information that you bring back. I just wish everyone of uh Amer- in this great country of ours every student would be able to go well and you're that. you're Maybe right and
3: and the other thing that you know the more places that you go to and the more people that you meet people oh. who are you know, arguably different. They they look different. They pray differently. They have they have different traditions, different histories, different backgrounds. But you know, when it's all said and done, we all want the same things in life. We are profoundly more alike than we are different. And if I just think that if people would 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 understand that, uh, it would be just easier to 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 respect other people. Uh, you know, there's 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 just too much arguing going around these days. And I, I think we have to find ways, you know, to, um, you know, to, to just try to understand our similarities as well as our differences.
1: It's so true. Oh, my goodness. I wish we had so much more time to talk about this. Uh, again, the book is called Opening My Cultural Lens, A Globe Trekker's Experiences and Photographs by Gail Shore. Check it out. You will be amazed at her stories and her pictures and how much she has learned. It transformed you. Am I correct? It transformed you, Gail.
3: Like I said, it has irreversibly changed my life. Can I I mention a couple of the book signings that I have coming up, too? Yes, please. Um, Well, I've got one. You know, I live in Wisconsin, so I've got one in Balsam Lake next Saturday the 12th. Saturday the 12th. Uh, one in Minneapolis um, on the seventeenth of November, and then another one in Saint Paul on December first. And if anybody's interested in going to those, um, you can just go to galeshore.com, and um, all the information is there, and um, you can uh, you can get a book there too.
1: Awesome! I'm so glad you gave me that. I'll, I'll try to come <laughs> to the Minneapolis. That's November seventeenth, and Saint Paul is December first. Correct. Okay. So glad to talk to you tonight and that you finished this. I can't wait for the second one to be made, to come forward because you've got a lot in you <laughs> to discuss and put forward. And we need all of that information. So I look forward to that. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Gail. Just awesome. Thanks, Congratulations. Ellen. Take care. Good to talk to you. You too. It is now 849. We're going to take a break and we'll be back. Welcome back, everyone. It is 8.53 here at WCCO. Glad to have you sticking and staying with us tonight. I do want to mention Gail Shore's um, book one more time because I want to make sure everyone heard where these three book, signers are going to, book signings are going to happen. And there will be some great conversation and discussions as well at each of these. So Saturday is the first one. Saturday, November 12th at 1 p.m. at Balsam Lake in Wisconsin. It's moderated by renowned Polar Explorers Laura Ann Bancroft, love her, presented by the Friends of the Balsam Lake Public Library. And it's at the Legion Hall at Pine Park, 311 Tuttle Street in Balsam Lake, Wisconsin, 54810. And I'm giving you this information. You can always go back to the podcast for tonight's show and make sure you pick up the right information. The second book signing is Thursday, November 17th at 6 p.m., 6 p.m. And that's in Minneapolis, moderated by Emmy Award-winning TV producer and former WCCO TV anchor Colleen Needles. And that is happening at the Women's Club of Minneapolis, 410 Oak Grove Street, Minneapolis, 55403. Again, that's at the Women's Club of Minneapolis, 410 Oak Grove Street, Minneapolis, 55403. That happens at 6 p.m. on November 17th. And the Women's Club is right there by Loring Park, so you can't miss it. Also, the last one is Thursday, December 1st, 6 p.m. in St. Paul. Again, that's Thursday, December 1st at 6 p.m. Moderated by author Jennifer, I hope I get this right, Trebaskowski, Beaver's Pond Press, 939 West 7th Street in St. Paul, 55102. Again, that's December 1st, 6 p.m. in St. Paul at Beavers Pond, Prest, which is 939 West 7th Street, St. Paul, Minnesota, 55102. If you get a chance, I promise you, reading through this book, you will start to really learn and you start to think to yourself, oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. Why can't I travel more? And if you can, do it. If you can, I've been to maybe 15 or 17 countries. That's nothing. The continent of Africa alone has, what, 50? It used to be 54. I think now it's 58. They keep breaking up, (laughs) right? So many countries to see throughout our world. And if I can go and see more and more and more, I will. My sister and I, we're trying our best to get to um uh, Kenya this this month. And we were not able to do it because of several circumstances with flying and other things, but it will happen. We're going to make sure that it happens. So those of you that can do it, do it and share everything you can about what happened when you did it. Okay. So I want to make sure that you know what the name of the book is. I'm going to give it one more time. Uh, is that is Opening My Cultural lens. A Globe Trekkers Experiences and Photographs. Wow. You know, Jonathan, I've been thinking about writing a book for a long time. I have 72 pages for one for a book that I really wanted to write about the experiences of Michael and I moving to Los Angeles together. Here he was, 17 years old, almost 18, and there I was. Well, I'm not telling my age, but yeah, you know, and it was really quite remarkable. I thought I was going to go down there and then teach my son everything he needed to learn, right? And then he came around and taught me so much, so much during that time. It was absolutely beautiful. We had a wonderful time. So traveling, going and meeting other cultures, even if you're right here in Minneapolis or St. Paul or in the great state of Minnesota, there are so many people from other countries. Then just get out there and start meeting people. It doesn't hurt to stop and say, hello, bonjour, whatever it takes, whatever language you know. And if you don't know it, just wave, smile. And that's a way of saying thank you. It's so nice to meet you. (laughs) you. All right, everyone, we're going to take a break and come back with Center Stage, all things arts and entertainment. We just believe you ought to know about it. Coming up, we really need new phones.
0: T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for 25 bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. <laughs>